0: Hey, everybody, welcome to Big Blend Radio's Military Monday show with Mike Guardia. Mike is a military historian. He's a U.S. Army veteran and award-winning author of so many books, I can't count anymore. Uh, He's also (laughs) one of our Big Blend experts, and I encourage you to go to his website, MikeGuardia.com, and also check out his books on Amazon. Uh, But today, uh, you know, we're really excited to chat with you, Mike, and welcome to our new format here. (laughs) Awesome! I know it's great to see you finally. You know, after all these years. (laughs) Uh Um, And Nancy says hi. Normally, Nancy's on the shows, but she is doing something with dogs. (laughs) Okay. Quiet. Uh, But anyway, um, you know, very excited because this is someone we wanted to talk about. Um, Uh Last year, we were in Lancaster County, uh, in Pennsylvania, in Amish country, and you know, Mm -hmm. going checking out covered bridges and everything, but. Uh, we were at Lancaster Ridge uh, Bed and Breakfast. And Susan Rymel, the yeah. uh, innkeeper, said, well, you must go to this park and you must go to that park. Me found mm-hmm. it was beautiful. Fall colors were slowly coming in. But she said in um, and, and Ephrata is where she was. Yeah. There was a park and it was named after. And there's a memorial for Mr. Winters, General Winters. And right. uh, yeah. And uh, Richard Davis, known as Dick Winters, and he was an officer in the U.S. Army, and definitely a very decorated war veteran. And um, his his mem- he has a memorial inside this park. And mm-hmm. he used to live like when he was a kid, like when he between eight and ten years old, uh, lived right around the corner from this park, which is also it's got his his statue. Where the sculpture is <laughs> actually like the duplicate of the one they did um, honoring him for D-Day and yeah. overseas. So it was really cool to see this. But then they also have a memorial trail, which is an old yeah. um, rails to trails program, which I'm a huge fan of is when they take the old railroads, instead of just leaving them derelict, turning them into jogging and biking and cycling trails. And it's just beautiful. So anyway, we had to bring you on the show because you sent us on uh-huh. that story mission to go and right. get well, it's it's generals and the generals footsteps. Um, uh-huh. But I think we're just really doing military history with you, no matter what. <laughs> But his, I, I didn't hear, I didn't know about the Band of Brothers, and Nancy and I are probably the only people who don't know, and now we do know. (laughs) (laughs) But um, that was a series that um, he, it's his, his story. Uh, It sure was written about him, and then I didn't know this, but that also inspired uh, Saving Private Ryan, the movie Saving Private Ryan. In
1: a lot of ways, yeah. So Dick Winters, uh, he's been an incredible inspiration for a lot of young officers. Um, and I think he will continue to be an inspiration for many generations to come. Uh, yeah, and he really embodies the whole warrior ethos and uh, the, the attitude and the culture that I think are part and parcel to that point in American history where you, know, you, had, a, you had a generation that, that grew up in the wake of the great depression They were already used to a life of hardship. They were already used to a life where you had to improvise in order to be successful. And uh, really, it was that rough and tumble upbringing, I think, for a lot of young people in America at that time that made them as resilient as they were when they went overseas to fight the Axis powers. And uh, he's uh, just uh, an incredible example of what a tactical leader should be. Someone who is at one and the same time tough as nails, but also has a heart of gold.
0: When we learned about him, our first thought was, oh my gosh, what a connection to yeah. Hal Moore, who you've written but right. now three books on Hal Moore and uh-huh. you know, have met him and also, you know, do speaking engagements on his leadership excellence. And um, correct. so I, when we were getting into his story, Nancy and I were like, oh my gosh, I wonder if they ever met. I mean, I know it's two different wars, right? Because, yeah. you know, Hal Moore is Korean and Vietnam, but this was, I wonder if they ever met
1: you know uh that is a good question and it's not even something that i even thought of until you just mentioned it but uh, you know i can speak to uh one of how more sons i'm sure that if if anyone knew of a potential meeting between those two then yeah it would definitely be one of how Moore's children but uh yeah my goodness if uh, they had met i mean just imagine the stories that they would have to share uh, you know, when you take a look at uh, how they led troops in combat, you really see that they are cut from the same cloth and uh, that they really embody the same values that uh, I think people in any organization would look up to, you know their their values uh, that uh, that may that have made them good leaders in any of the organizations that they've led.
0: Well, I think what's important is they didn't just lead behind the lines, they got in, to the right. action with their with, with their band of brothers, really. And that's I think right. even the title says that. And, uh, you know, that, that becomes like lifelong family. And I think that's uh-huh. something uh, Hal Moore definitely represented. And also, right. he did, it, I bet you they did. You know, Hal Moore went to West Point. And then Mm -hmm. he taught at West Point, Dick did, did, uh, you know, so there was that. He went and did speaking engagements. He wasn't like a teacher there, right? He wasn't a professor Mm -hmm. there, but Mm -hmm. he did go and do speaking engagements. Um, But did you see that list of, you know, all his medals? I mean, wow, he needs his own museum.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He sure does. Well, I think some uh, of his
0: uh, medals are in... um, Pennsylvania, I know he lived in Hershey, Pennsylvania, and out there they do have, uh, one of the museums have his medals and some of his um, writings, and um, so I don't know man we need to, I don't know I wish we could get them both together but they're probably talking to each other up there. (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. But, um, I wanted to touch on him getting into world war ii because we talk about the draft and a lot of times if you even mention the draft in this country first thing everyone thinks of is the vietnam war i think right Um, world war ii from what i've learned about him he went into he went and you know took the draft instead of going to college Mm. at that time and said let me go in now while i'm really needed and um got in there and look what he did and he ended up on d-day and he became a paratrooper right being a paratrooper pretty new at that point, or was it, it War one as well?
1: It was. Uh, so the whole concept of airborne infantry uh, was new to American forces in the late winter of 1941 and the early spring of 1942 uh, was a concept ironically enough that uh, was inspired by the Germans. and the war mocked, they had their, uh, you know, they had their own elite shock troop forces. And uh, seeing how much these paratroopers, along with the many other combined arms facets, seeing what they had accomplished during Blitzkrieg really inspired American military planners to take notice. And they said, well, this will help us, this will help us achieve victory on the battlefield in a tactical sense by helping us, uh, really by helping us achieve what we call vertical envelopment. So we can take the enemy not only from a frontal position or take them from the flanks, but if we can deliver troops, get boots on the ground and somehow deliver them from the third dimension, that will make um, our ground operations that much easier. Uh, So you fast forward to about the uh, spring of 1942, this is March, April timeframe. We start putting our um, our own airborne forces into play. Uh, We start going through the testing and development of said forces in places like Camp Toccoa in Georgia, where we're validating what concepts work with parachutes and what concepts don't. And you have a a slew of young volunteers from the growing armed forces that are volunteering for this duty. And the training was uh, so intense and so rough that only a small percentage made it. You know, you had something to the tune of, you know, several thousand, uh, several thousand volunteers who would start the airborne training in the spring of 1942. But by the end of the summer, maybe 1800 had made the cut.
0: Wow. Wow. That's, that's, but you think about it, like, what would, yeah. would you do? it? I know you, you went out in tanks, you know, that's, uh-huh. that's to me that, I know it's not a submarine. We've talked about that, but, still, right. <laughs> land submarines. Yeah. but you know, going out in a, you know, and saying, okay, we're going to drop down from the sky behind enemy uh-huh. lines. I mean, the training of that had to be like intense, but that had to be so scary to, I mean, how close do you get to your band of brothers are you out in the field on your own, you know, going, uh Oh, now what, where am I?
1: Well, yeah, the, uh, I, I have to say the airborne training, at least from what I have experienced of it. I mean, I went to airborne school where okay. it was a three week course where you learn to make five qualifying jumps And, uh, I can tell you that, uh, just the three week training that I had was not only very intense, but it was also very exhilarating. And I think it's that exhilaration factor that, um, that really pushes you through the parts of the training that get exceptionally hard. Um, but, you know, I, I I can also tell you that, uh, that the airborne forces that we have, uh, those who, uh, go on to, you know. They don't just go to airborne school, but they go on to to join the airborne divisions and the various airborne regiments that we have. That they are the most elite and they are the most highly trained uh, airborne soldiers anywhere in the world.
0: Wow! And going behind lines—I mean, the enemy lines—that's kind of, excuse me, but it's ballsy. <laughs> it really, <laughs> it is. Is. I'm sorry. It is. Go- I mean, it, to me, I'd be like, uh, oh man, you know. But um, yeah. I, I watched an interview with him and he talked about having a silk map in like sewn mm-hmm. inside out of the seam of his pants. So if, even if he got caught, they wouldn't see the map the way right. they sewed it in. So was that a common practice for all the paratroopers at that time timeframe?
1: Uh, it was common to a lot of airborne units at the time. Um, a lot of airborne commanders were exceptionally creative with ways that they could keep operational security. And, uh, A lot of them were telling themselves, "Okay, well, if there is an outside chance that someone gets captured or if there is a chance that someone gets dropped into the wrong place at the wrong time. Since at that since at that point, I mean, we're talking 1943 and 1944, uh, airborne operations weren't an exact science at the time, and uh, they weren't quite as they weren't quite as refined or quite as sophisticated as they are today, so so um, miscalculating drops uh, was a was a pretty common risk that you took whenever you whenever you sent um, airborne troopers into uh, into combat. So they said to themselves, "Okay, and the outside chance that somebody gets captured, or we do a misdrop, and we intend to put somebody on one drop zone, and they end up, you know, yeah, you know, thirty or twenty some odd miles away in a place where they're not supposed to be." What can we do to help ensure operational security, so that if somebody has information, it won't be readily compromised? And that was and the and the, uh, the silk maps were part of that. They uh, also knew that uh, printing maps on silk made it a lot more resistant to the weather. So if you were uh, dropping into uh, dropping into enemy territory, and it just so happened to be the rainy season. Well, your map casing is only going to protect it so much for, you know, so many thousand miles. If you have a silk map, it's going to be weather resistant for, uh, you know, months and even years on end.
0: Okay. So if you land in, you know, this other field far away and you get your map out, you kind of need to know, like, okay, I mean, did they kind of know the map and go through that, obviously, before they dropped out of the sky and said, okay, you know, (laughs) So they could kind of have some idea, okay, as they're going down, I'm just thinking like how fast it it is for them. Because in a way, like if you think about the velocity, you you don't want to go down so fast, right? You don't want to get hurt and you don't want to be too slow because you don't want the enemies to see you. And did they do this at night, by the way?
1: They did it at night and also during the day. Um, yeah, th- that's one of the risks that you take whenever you do daytime airborne operations is that the parachute itself is, and by design it has to be, it's a slow falling asset. Um, so there's always a chance that a, there's always a chance that a paratrooper is going to a- expose himself to enemy gunfire because there's only so much that you can do when you're suspended from a harness and you're floating very slowly, slowly to the ground at like, I don't know, maybe maybe five miles an hour at the quickest. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And that's also why, um, a lot of tactical airborne operations aren't really done from that high of an altitude. Uh, you know, if you have your, if you have your regular static line operations, typically you're not jumping at altitudes above 1500 feet. Okay. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's high enough to where you can get out the plane and the canopy can deploy and, uh, but it's low enough to where you're not going to be in the air for too, too long.
0: So he dropped down on on D-Day, right? Mm -hmm. And then continued on to fight from there. Right. So when that happens, like D-Day, I mean, that's a huge mark in history. Mm -hmm. How many would go down at one time? How many would just like jump out and say, we're going over? Like, what do you think? I mean, is it, Uh, I'm I'm trying to picture that, you know, I'm I'm only learning. I'm still in school for this (laughs) with you, you know? Um, Um, But like, if you think about them all coming uh, out, you know, it's like, are they going to band up together and go okay let's go get them over here or are they off on their own almost like snipers
1: uh no so so typically speaking um when you have paratroopers inside of an aircraft that's that that's going to deliver them to the battlefield uh they organize themselves into into small little units called chocks and Typically, uh, if we're if we're talking about a C forty seven, then you're then you're looking at maybe about thirty to thirty five troopers per plane, and uh, yeah, and uh, well, what they'll do is they'll line up along the inside fuselage of the plane that's going to deliver them to the battlefield, and then and then once the indicator light on the inside of the fuselage goes from red to green, that's the signal for everyone to start jumping out, and then they file out one by one, and there's enough of a uh, timing separation so that two canopies don't get tangled up. And then once everyone has arrived on the drop zone, typically what you'll do is you'll have a chalk leader who will have some kind of predetermined comms with another chalk leader to say, hey, we're at this position on the drop zone. And then you'll have the platoons, companies, and even battalions start to consolidate at all these predetermined areas that are either going to be very close to the drop zone or maybe two to three miles out
0: wow wow and you think yeah. about like isn't it world war one where we really started getting into air combat you know and to right. world war Two, here we are dropping out of the sky so yeah. the you know when you think about the pilots we've talked about um in the books uh-huh. that you've written you know like talking about yeah. the f-14s and um, uh-huh. all of that so they have to learn all of that don't they
1: well they have to learn a little bit of it um you see every pilot uh Every pilot, he's going to do something uh, that that that's called survival, evasion, resistance, and escape training, or SEER for short. And it's essentially a course that gives him or her a foundation to what they need to do if ever they need to bail out of an aircraft and if they find themselves in hostile territory, how they can survive and how hopefully they, they can make their way back to friendly lines.
0: Mm. So I, I, am just fascinated about it. Cause it's just, yeah. it, it is crazy. And just like, Hey, we're just going to come out, you yeah. know, and listening to him talk about this. He's just like, yeah, yeah. yeah it was what we did, man. <laughs> like No way. Um, but yeah. he also went on to fight in Belgium, France, Germany. Um, he sure did. but then later helped actually, you know, there's that, I mean, if we look at right now in this country, we're like pulling out of Afghanistan, right. And everybody has mm-hmm. different opinions of that. Um, pulling out of a region and, and going from, okay, we're in war to not out of war. It's not like, okay, now we just quit and walk home. That's, that's a different deal. And he kind of helped in that effort, didn't he? Kind of that, that balance part.
1: Right, right. He did. So um, probably one of the more heartrending aspects of his duty after the, uh, after actual combat operations had ended um, was not only uh, to establish a uh, security force, within the immediate area of where his of where his unit was, but uh, also having to um, also having to shore up some of the refugees from the concentration camp in Landsberg, where his unit uh, where his unit um, ultimately ultimately discovered many of the Holocaust survivors. Um, as a matter of fact, if you look at I believe it's episode nine in the Band of Brothers series, it goes into great detail of how Dick Winters unit, Easy Company, first of the 506. Came upon a concentration camp, and that was the, uh, the that was their introduction to the broader concept of the Holocaust. Since prior to this point, they had they had no idea that any of this was going on. So they not only had to process those refugees, they had to hear those horror stories of what had happened to them simply by virtue of being Jewish, and you know not only come to grips with that, but also you know make sure that they received the proper medical care and also interrogate a lot of local civilians as to what this, you know, what, what was this death camp? What was this labor camp? You know, what is this whole concept of putting people in striped pajamas and sewing a Star of David on their chest?
0: Oh man, I, I can imagine that. I mean, not knowing. Mm-hmm. So then you're right. telling, you know, hey, your leaders about like, excuse me, this is what's happening, Right. you know, going through that part. And so mm-hmm. that's kind of, I don't, I find it interesting about what's happening now. How we, you know, just, it's, it's fascinating just at, with Afghanistan right now about, right. you know, what's what's going on and now the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I I can't speak on it, but I find it like I read, you know, you read and listen to right. so <laughs> many reports, you don't know who what to believe anymore. <laughs> like, what was it right, right or wrong? You know, right. You well, know, it's hard.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's always hard trying to secure the peace after the fighting stops. And, you know, it, and. For that matter, it's even hard to it's it's also pretty hard to determine when the fighting does stop, mm-hmm. because in the traditional concepts of warfare, you don't stop until your enemy has decided that he's done, until he's decided that he doesn't want to carry on anymore. And in the case of World War II, there was a definitive endpoint. You know, we got closer to the goal line when Adolf Hitler committed suicide. And then we had an official drop dead date when his second in command ordered the German army to surrender. Mm-hmm. So for that point, at that point, it was very easy for us to determine when the conflict stopped. And I also think I also think given the um, given the geopolitical context of the time, it was a lot easier to secure the peace afterwards mm-hmm. because, you know, we all knew who the aggressor was. We all knew that uh, it was a. It was a faction that was controlling this particular country in this particular part of the world. Uh, Everyone knew who the winner was and who the loser was. And there was a party of winners that could invest their resources into rebuilding this country into a post-war state Mm -hmm. that would not cause trouble again in the same manner that it had in 1938. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, here in Afghanistan, we have an entire different construct, you know, we have a culture that is so radically different from our own, Uh, you know, when we were fighting, uh, when we were fighting the Nazis in World War II, there was a little bit of, there was a little bit of cultural compatibility there simply because, you know, it was, uh, it was, well, essentially it was part of Western civilization. So we had some commonalities there. Here, the, you know, here the, uh, the culture is different. The ethnicity is different. The religion is different. And, you know, if you take a look at not only Afghanistan, but the Middle East as a whole, uh, stability has been the exception there. It has not been the rule. And there are as many reasons out there as the day is long for why that region has not been stable. But uh, it was never going to be as clear cut defining the peace and securing the peace in Afghanistan as it was in Right. In, in Nazi Germany, you know, 70, almost 80 years ago.
0: Right. And I think it, it was it, and it was a world war, like everyone right. coming together a little bit mm-hmm. more, you know, and I think that's but it's interesting to me going back to Dick Winters. Um, here he was fighting and doing yeah. this and then trying to, you know, finish the peace part. And mm-hmm. then he had other things he wanted to do before he got drafted or accepted right. the draft and went, you know, he was going to go to college and everything and he ended up doing a lot of business. In fact, I think he was taking like the byproducts of chocolate and selling them to right. farmers or something. I'm like, you're giving pigs chocolate. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, but Hey, Hershey's Pennsylvania. Yeah. But um, um, so he did have a business career, but basically the military and, and the government, you know, the greater government wanted him to continue on. And he did. Right.
1: Right. So um he w- was actually pretty lucky in the sense that he finished college about six months before Pearl Harbor started, um, and uh, he he was one of those who enlisted shortly before Pearl Harbor, and uh, you know he was able to er- er- earn an officer's commission and uh, did exceptionally well. But as as time kept dragging on, you know he uh, he found himself at a crossroads. He said, okay, well, I can either stay in the army, which he very seriously considered doing at one point, or I can get out. And, uh, you know, he, he ultimately, he he ultimately elected to, to become demobilized Mm. and return to civilian life. Uh, But he was reactivated during the Korean war. And uh, that was, that was the one where he really dug his heels into, and if you take that in context with everything that he had seen as a combat leader in World War II, uh, he had every right to tell the army, "Hey, no, I've seen enough of combat. I've seen enough of war. Uh, you know, you guys had me for the better part of four years when I was fighting the Nazis in Europe. I really don't want to do this again." Mm. So, and as a matter of fact, when he got reactivated, um, he. Took some time out of his schedule to go to uh, to go to Washington D.C. and speak to General McAuliffe, who had once upon a time been the commander of airborne forces. And he said, "Look, General, you know everything that I did when I was in the 506 in Europe. You know about the uh, you know about the uh, you know attacks on uh, a Bretcourt Manor. You know about the battles at Carentan. You know about uh, you know about everything that I did in the broader context of Operation Market Garden." I've really seen enough of war at this point and I don't have anything else to prove. Is there any way that I can just not do this? And McAuliffe, he uh, appreciated his position, but he said, look, uh, you did so well in the last war, you could at least be of some value to us in this war. So he then got orders to the 11th airborne division, which at that time was down at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And, uh, uh, Winters, his first assignment therein was to be a plans and training officer, mm. but uh, the, uh, the job was probably the worst example of a mind-numbing, busy work, bureaucratic post that you can imagine, and he, and he volunteered for duty with the Rangers, and by God, he was prepared to go overseas and fight the communists as a ranger. And at the eleventh hour, I think he was either at Fort Lewis or it could have been Fort Ord. I don't remember which, but he was preparing to uh, go overseas when it was brought to his attention that there was a clause in the um, in, in the personnel law that was governing how officers could deploy. It said if you were a prior commissioned officer in World War II and you had combat experience in World War II, you can resign your commission by this effective date. And You can go back to being a civilian if you want.
0: Awesome.
1: And and he took that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the the army was very reluctant to let him go at first. And uh, you know, I think for good reason, just because of how talented, how talented and how competent he was as a leader. But uh, yeah, I mean, given everything that he had done, he certainly had nothing left to prove.
0: Yeah, and and it's not even just you know something to prove. It's also Mm -hmm. so much in such a little time, like to go through process that later is, is mm-hmm. huge, you know, to go right. through. And, and I think, can you, are you going to do it again? You know, you know, and yeah. I, I see that happening now, you know, so many yeah. tours and it's hard to have that time to breathe and process. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I think that, yeah, I think gotta do, you gotta have what you want to do in life. Right. Right. But a <laughs> bad respect for him, because I think, you know, the book, cause I think he wrote his story first before Steve Ambrose wrote his book. I think he had written some of like documents or something, some kind of documentation um, before the, the original book that inspired band of brothers came out. And I know there's other books out about him, but the mm-hmm. fact that it lived on through books, through, you know, movies and, 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 and HBO series, right. I think it, his spirit lives on, but also mm-hmm. the story of what he did and the band of brothers, not just him. And I think that's right. the beauty of it, like what you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. writing your books, you know, it, it keeps everything out in the forefront, which is important for people to know and understand and, and learn. Like I'm learning, right. <laughs> you know, it's cool. I don't yeah. think I'll ever go and jump out of the sky because that's never no way. I'm not even good with bridges, <laughs> you know, so, and I'm in Florida and I just did a bunch of causeways and even those. No, it's flat, <laughs> but no, but I just, you have a mad respect for, you know, everything he's done and everyone that fought with him, you know? Right. So he's definitely he's got I think he's got three memorials dedicated to him now, mm-hmm. three statues around the world. At so, least, yeah. yeah, I mean, so w- I remember with Hal Moore, you know, seeing his movie really inspired you to write about him and follow up on his story. When you saw uh-huh. Band of Brothers, was that one of those that you were like, OK, this is another really good one, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that did it right?
1: Yeah, um, it was an incredible inspiration for me to see that film and, uh, you you know, I mean, just to see how well the actors portrayed those characters and, you know, to also learn about what happened behind the scenes that, uh, you know, each of the, uh, that each of the actors who was selected to play a particular role Many of them got to meet the real life counterpart of the person that they were playing mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, just the intense training that they all went through in order to make that miniseries as realistic as it was. Uh, yeah, it was an incredible inspiration for me to see that and uh, awesome. said, OK, this is really the way to make a war picture you know, mm-hmm. or in this case to make a, uh, a war miniseries. Yeah. But, uh, but they most certainly did it right.
0: Awesome. So let's talk about you. You've got like how many, okay. How many books are published now? I can't, I'm trying to keep okay. up.
1: All righty. So as of right now, there are there are exactly 19 books. Wow. And uh, then book number 20 is coming out on September 1st, That's Skybreak. And then October 15th is the biography on General Paul Gorman. That yes. is the book called Danger Forward. And then November fifteenth, just one month ha- after that, is a book called *The Combat Diaries*, and that is a collection of uh, that's that, that, that a collection of short stories from World War II. Um, all of whom follow the uh, individual uh, lives and uh, and service careers of uh, about about two dozen individuals, um, many of whom remain unknown to the greater American public. Uh, just by just by way of example. Uh, There's one story in the combat diaries about an an Army Air Corps sergeant who uh, was shot down in a B-24, and he ended up surviving internment in three different German POW camps before the end of the war.
0: Wow. Wow. So that
1: just gives you an idea there. And then going into 2022 uh, for the um, spring and summer season, uh, you you have Viper Alley which is a combat history of the F-16 Fighting Falcon. Um, for any of the non-Air Force types out there, uh, Viper is a, is a uh, common nickname for the F-16. And then after that, I'm shifting my focus back eastward across the Iron Curtain for a book called Red Bandit. And that is a uh, combat history of the MiG-29.
0: You've just been leading such a slow, boring life, Mike. <laughs>
1: yeah there's nothing too exciting
0: no no i think that's a that is quite a <laughs> slew of books man that is exciting i think that's super exciting skybreak give everyone a little overview of that and that's the next one coming out
1: yeah okay Good so cover,
0: by the way i like oh, the cover thank you. i'm
1: glad you like it yeah yeah so skybreak is a history of the 58th fighter squadron in desert storm uh this was an F- f-15 eagle squadron and uh yeah they hold the distinction of being the highest killing unit of the entire conflict. They shot down more enemy planes than any other air unit uh, throughout the entire war. Uh, They had the most MiG kills, and they also had the distinction of killing the most number of MiG-29s, also having the distinction of being the unit to have the most double kills in a single unit, i.e. a pilot shooting down um, two or more planes Throughout the uh, duration of the war.
0: Wow! Wow! Well, we'll be chatting about that soon, right? <laughs> Definitely. Sure, sure. Will absolutely. Well, uh, congratulations on all this. These books. So I was well, going to say, oh, he's going to have. He's going to have 21 books by the end of 2021, but no, you had to have 2020. I mean, you had to have 22 books, right? <laughs> He's at 23 now. I can't, again, can't keep up with all of it, but that's fantastic. Everyone, again, please go to MikeGuardia.com. Um, you can also listen to his interviews. Just go to BigBlendRadio.com, type in Mike Guardia in the search box, and mm-hmm. uh, also get his books out on Amazon and keep up with us at BigBlendRadio.com. Thanks for joining us, Mike. It's always a pleasure
1: all righty lisa well thank you so much for having me on the show always a pleasure to be here thanks